Let's start reading in Genesis chapter 34. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamer, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And those words together, if you took the most accurate picture you can put together, is that he abducted and raped her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamer, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamer spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and a gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people." But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamer and Hamer's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. Every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that is in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? 
Because of the things going on in our family, we've not been able to make it to the football game. And I had the privilege of announcing the football game this last Friday night, and it was a fun one. And our boys came out victorious, and we only get two up here because we've merged with North Holm. So it was a little bit of a challenge for me because I only know about half the kids on the team, so I'm trying to look for numbers as they're getting up out of a pile and they're not always faced right at you. So sometimes they're kind of sideways. And and you know the visiting team made it even harder because their jerseys were a white background with yellow numbers. Trying to see yellow on white from a distance, it made it difficult with a light color on a light background, tough to see. Well, the reason that I bring that up is one commentator of this passage said that he believes that the purpose for this passage within the Bible is like that of a jeweler. When a jeweler goes to pull out a diamond for you to look at, they lay it on a black background so that the elements of the diamond are easily visible. And I believe that that's what we're looking at when we see this chapter. Because as we've gone through the book of Genesis, we've seen this repeatedly. We see the the glories of the grace of God as he makes a covenant with Abraham and his descendants and begins to faithfully carry out that covenant. But in the midst of carrying out that covenant, we see the descendants of Abraham also often involved in a lot of things that are very dark and that are corrupt. And so I think that the reason that God has had this passage included for us within his word, the details of this story, is because it provides that black background that we can more clearly see the bright grace of God that exists within the covenant. He just got done reinstating the covenant again and giving it to Jacob. In fact, remember in late in chapters 32 and 33, he changes Jacob's name and says you're no longer be called, going to be called Jacob. You're not going to be deceiver anymore. You're going to be he who wrestles with God. You're going to be Israel. Well, right after we get done with chapter 34, when he goes into 35, he revisits that and he's instantly going to reinstate the blessing to Jacob again and mention his name change again. So this very dark chapter where we see a young man take advantage of an innocent girl and he abducts her and rapes her, then his heart seems to change toward her. It started out as selfish lust, seems to have have changed where his heart is uh, taken by her and then he wants her to be his wife and then the, the elements unfold and the brothers come back and they're mad because of what has been done to their daughter, which, is, which it seems like is still in that person's possession. And so what do they do? They scheme and they plot this way to get even. And we see uh, the slaughter of the males of an entire town. What a dark episode in this early Israel history. You know, it's a sad day. Unfortunately, I can't say that it doesn't strike too close to home sometimes. I was reading through this passage and thinking, you know, uh, what does this have to do with us? Uh, Unfortunately, you don't have to think about that very long before you realize that there's some senseless murders in our own society with much less motivation than these young men had. When I think of school shootings that have taken place within our society, in our culture, when I think of the the senseless slaughter of many and and people that they they don't even know and that haven't even done anything to them, maybe this passage doesn't strike so far from home as we'd like to believe it does. As we see more of that happen within our society as time goes on, we're told coming to this point through all of our knowledge and all of our growth and all of our wisdom, we're supposed to be kind of moving beyond these things, but it seems like they're becoming more frequent. Even in ancient Israel's history, it speaks so much of today. We see the darkness of human sinfulness, and then we see the beautiful, gleaming grace of God as he continues to reach out to a very sinful people to give them a covenant, to give them a hope and a promise, to give them a new way to live and a new kind of life. God reaches into that darkness with his hope. And so as we look through our passage here this morning, what we're doing is searching for diamonds. 
as we do that, there are some interpretive challenges. I noticed as I wrestled with it throughout this week and wrestling with this issue of the darkness of human behavior and the darkness of mankind. You know, in, in human behavior, we find amazing things. We find the depravity of a school shooting or the depravity of an incident like the one that we're reading against this morning. And we will also find greatness because we find greatness as people will risk their lives to come to the aid of others. So in our human experience, we see both destruction and heroism. And that actually makes sense with the biblical understanding of mankind because we see mankind originally what? Made in the image of God. So you would expect to see man do some great things if he's made in the image of God. But we also see that they rebelled against God and willfully entered into sin and left the path of God. And so he's corrupted by that sinful nature. And so we would expect to see him do things of horror as well. As it turns out, that is exactly our experience. Well, as we deal with the passage, I think that the interpretive challenges are these. I think, first of all, we need to be careful to not oversimplify. I notice that's my first response. My first response is to kind of make a simple judgment on what's going on there so that I can kind of wash my hands clear of it and move on. But the fact of the matter is we're dealing with a tough issue here. We've got Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, and his sons. His sons are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are the leaders of the chosen people of God. And they can do this horrible thing. Of all the people in the world, these are supposed to be the people that are on the right page with God. These are the chosen of God. These are supposed to be the people that are headed the right direction. But they don't seem to be. Now, I think argument can get made as soon as you get to chapter 35. These are men that have wandered off the path. They're not worshiping the true God like they should. They're not following him wholeheartedly. In fact, when you get to chapter 35, one of the first things that Jacob's going to do is he takes his sons and they move out of there and they go try to make a new, a new beginning kind of. They move back to Bethel, the place where he worshiped God before. Is The first thing he's going to do is he's going to tell his sons, look, get rid of your idols. They were already worshiping other gods. And he brings all these idols that he's made and he digs a hole underneath a tree and he buries them all. And you know, that's the thing. As we look back through history... We're going to find within the patriarchs of of Israel, we find some real human atrocities that they commit. If you look back and study the history of the church, you're going to find a lot of atrocities done in the name of Christ that were committed as well. For us to just say, well, they got off track and dismiss it, I think is wrong. I think we need to recognize it. We need to not just turn the other way, but learn from those things. Now, they did get off track. That's one thing that I love about Christianity. I think if you follow... Uh, rational thinking, if you follow logic all the way, it leads you to the God of the Bible. And the reason of this, you find that in Christianity, whenever we see the church or a Christian or an individual doing something in the name of Jesus that is the wrong thing, he commits an atrocity, you can always go back and find where Christ taught him to do it differently. I find it in my own life. When I do something wrong, I can always go back and find a place in the Bible telling me that I shouldn't have done that. But you know, that's not the case in every other religion in the world. I think like, for example, with Hinduism, there's a whole caste system that keeps India down. And it's a logical outworking of their faith. Because Hinduism is based on this principle of reincarnation. You live your life and you do the best you can and whatever mistakes you made, whatever you need to learn, you come back as something else to teach you to overcome that fault. So if you're here and you're a poor person or you're a person that's struggling or suffering and going through things like that, well, then the reason that that's happening is to teach you a lesson. So if I help you, I will actually cause you not to learn the lesson that you're supposed to learn. And so I'm not going to help you. And that's why that caste caste system in India keeps 
the peasants down in poverty because it would actually be wrong of somebody to lift them out of that poverty. That's the lovely thing about Christianity. It's the right thing to do to lift that person out, to help that individual. Islam, how are they able to convince so many young people to strap bombs themselves and go into the place because there's offers of eternal (laughs) bliss if that's the way you go? Now, Christianity hasn't been separate from that either. Back, If you look back during the Crusades, some of those same promises were made, but it's against their scripture. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. It's against what is taught within the principles of Christianity, so they're actually violating their faith to do it. A big problem with the Crusades is it was a time before the printing press was invented. It was a time before there was a high level of literacy. People weren't able to read their Bibles. They didn't own a Bible. And so they were just given what was told them. And when you end up with some corrupt leadership that links in politics into the mix, you end up with a real mess. And so we can't oversimplify. We can't just pretend those things didn't happen. We need to acknowledge when there's atrocities that are done and deal with them accordingly. But you know what I find? The other side runs the simplicity too quickly too. I don't know how many times I've heard religion blamed for all the ills in the world. How many times have you heard the Crusades come up? Well, the Crusades, look at that. I remember working with a a guy one time that hated the fact that I was a Christian. He said, religion has led to more death in the world than anything else. I said, well, if that many people are willing to die for it, maybe there's more to it than you know. You know, since then, I've learned more. And actually, the comment that he made, I should have challenged it, because historically, it's just not true. When you look back at the Crusades, there were a lot of people's lives that were lost. It was partly over religion. It was partly over safety of travel, pilgrimages. So that would kind of be linked in with religion. It was partly over finances. People were hungry. So there are multiple reasons for the Crusades that were linked in. There were motivations. But you know what? If you look at the Crusades, how many lives did it take? The Crusades took a toll between Christian and Muslim deaths of, they figure, between one and three million people. So let's just center on two million people. Now, the loss of two million people is horrible. There's no doubt about it. But it does not compare with the deaths at the hand of atheism. If you look at the toll that atheism has taken just within the last century, what do we find? We find Hitler. Hitler was an evolutionist making the supreme race. Six million of the Jewish people were slaughtered by Hitler. If you throw in other civilian casualties, you get up to about 11 million of non-Jewish people that were also killed by Hitler. Joseph Stalin in communist Russia tried to exile religion out of Russia to make his communist party. And the death toll for that, it's a little bit hard to figure. They say he's at least responsible for 20 million. If you throw in the uh, casualties of World War II, which that helped lead to, then it's another 20 million, and some historians estimate as high as 60 million people died under the influence of Joseph Stalin. Mao Zedong, in four years' time, killed 45 million people in his great leap forward. Do you see the blackness of our human history? And to just simplify it and say, oh, it's because people are religious so they get afraid and they kill each other, doesn't work. Karl Marx elevated the state, leads to communism, socialism. Hitler elevated a race. It seems that the human race will always elevate something that makes us better than you, and that's why we've got to get rid of you so that then everything will work just fine. The idea of because people are religious, then they have these factions against one another, and so they destroy each other, it just doesn't ring true. In fact, if you think about it, we dismantle our whole way of thinking if we follow that line of thought. Because the reasoning goes this way. If we take out religion, then that will lead to no more killing. Well, if we take out religion, then what are we saying? We're saying we have to eliminate the concept of God. Well, where do we get the concept that killing is wrong to begin with? If you take out the concept of God, if you just are based with natural progression or evolution, then what is evolution based on? It's based on survival of the fittest. So if you look at it from that sense, then you're back to where Hitler was. 
Because if you're looking at survival of the fittest, then killing people is progress. So you see, it undermines our whole argument to begin with. Remember, I think it was a few months ago, I mentioned to you a book that was written by Annie Dillard back in 1974. It was called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She lived by this creek, and she decided to just kind of journal for a year of her experience of experiencing nature at the creek. But she found that the creek was very violent, animals killing each other, insects killing each other. And she came to this struggle. I'm in a world that is very violent. I have a problem with the violence. I see the violence as wrong, but I'm a product of this world. So if I'm a product of this world that is violent, why do I see it as wrong? Why doesn't it feel natural to me? You see the struggle? There's something inside of her that just screams, this is wrong, this is not just. But if she's just a product of that same process, then why does it not feel natural? You see, that brings us right back to that there has to be, God has to be real, He has to be true. It's the only thing that makes sense. And so we cannot oversimplify as we look at the passage. We cannot just dismiss the evils of mankind and pretend they didn't happen. We cannot just try to separate ourselves from them as if we're not part of mankind ourselves. We have to recognize them for what they are. But secondly, do not confuse descriptive writing with prescriptive writing. You see, I've read articles before. I remember somebody dealing with the issue of sexuality one time. They said, within the Bible, you can find every kind of sexuality you can think of. You can find incest and homosexuality and bestiality and fidelity and polygamy. And, and you can find everything. So everything, there is no biblical view of marriage. Or there is no biblical view of sexuality. Boy, that is one ignorant statement. And the reason is, yes, you can find all those things in the Bible. That's absolutely true. But you have to recognize that there's a difference between the Bible describing what people did and prescribing what is supposed to be done. That's why when Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce and remarriage, he went back to the Garden of Eden where it was prescribed what God's will was for that institution. It says, one man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, two shall become one. The Apostle Paul did the same thing in his teaching in the New Testament. He went back to where God prescribed what he wanted for that marriage relationship. He went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The two should become one. Now, we see a lot of behavior described in the Bible. Even this. We see the slaughter of a town. We see the taking advantage of, of a young woman. Does that mean that that's how God wants us to behave? Absolutely not. And so as we're looking through in the, in the Bible, we've got to see exactly what God tells them to do what he prescribes them to do compared to what he's just describing what happened. Because one can describe the, the darkness of the human heart while the other one describes the will of an almighty God. And so we need to be careful. As we look in the passage uh, a little bit farther up, when we get to Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is about to die and he's pronouncing a blessing upon his children. And notice what he says in verses 5 through 7. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So you see, even years later, when Jacob comes to the end of his life and he's blessing all of his children, when he gets to Simeon and Levi, he remembers this occasion. And he says, don't connect me with them. Not with that. So we have these struggles. We have the evil of mankind, and we have the glory of the covenants of God that he's reaching out to this lost and dying mankind. 
the evil of humanity is the backdrop that we get to see the glories of the covenant of God through. Now, as we do that, lessons to be learned. What do we learn? The first thing we learn is our need for a Savior. Do you realize what we've seen up to this point of going through the book of Genesis? And we see that mankind is prone toward corruption. Adam and Eve put in a perfect garden. They ended up deciding to listen to the serpent, the devil, instead of God. And they brought us all into sin. And then what happens? Cain has a choice. You can do right or not do right. He kills his brother Abel. The rest of the world begins to become more and more like Cain. Until God says, I'm sorry that I made the whole thing. I'm going to wipe it all out and start over. Takes the one righteous person that's left, Noah, and his family and saves them in the ark and floods the whole rest of the world, destroys the rest of mankind. They get off the boat. God tells them now, spread out, be fruitful and multiply. They said, no, we're going to stick together and build this tower up to the heavens. We're going to make our own name great. And God judges them with the confusion of the languages and spreads them out across the nations. In the Garden of Eden, they knew who God was, and they blew it. After the flood, you can easily say everybody on the earth knew God at that time. didn't last very long. The Tower of Babel, that all these times, even, even within Jacob's family, now God has those people spread out all over the world. He picks Abraham. I'm going to bless you and your family. And Abraham can't keep his family on track. Jacob's sons are already worshiping idols and slaughtering a town. And like I said, it can't be too far from home, can it, with the things that we see happen within our own society. I love Little Fork. I love raising my kids here. I'd like to have all my grandkids here, but they keep moving away. <laughs> but, but you know one of the things I love about it? We're a small town. Things don't move quite as fast here. We still get to have release time ministry in our public school, and we still get to have baccalaureate services. And, and if a kid gets hurt during a football game, I can pray for him over the microphone. Nobody's going to say anything negative to me about it. And I thought, I like that small, safe community. Then I heard about a small community kind of like it down in Texas where somebody walked into a church and shot up a whole bunch of them. And I thought, wow, it doesn't just happen in the big cities. It can happen in small communities too. Now, thankfully, it hasn't happened in ours. But it just makes you realize people are people wherever you go. And we see the corruption within our human nature. We need a Savior, and we need Him desperately. Well, the second thing that we learn to maintain your distinctiveness. Notice how quick Jacob was to cave. What is the plan? That our peoples will become one. You had Jacob who was supposed to be worshiping God. And then you had these other peoples that were worshiping other gods. And what is the plan? These two peoples become one. We'll just meld in together. Couldn't be farther from God's plan. Remember why God gave them the right of circumcision to begin with? Was to separate Abraham's Children from the rest of the world. Now there's the promise, the, the covenant to Abraham, was I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you, turn you into a great nation, and then through you I'm going to bless the whole rest of the world. There is a global, there is, a, there is an inclusiveness to this plan. But you know what? Here's the deal. If Jacob's family, which is supposed to be God-honoring, just kind of blends with this community of people that are worshiping other gods, you just lost the blessing of Abraham. It can't work that way. The only way is if Jacob's family maintains their distinctiveness and they follow God with all their hearts, then other people can come in. They were allowed to do that. Other people could proselytize. They could come in, become circumcised, join with Israel, trust in the covenant of God. That way, Israel could reach the world. But just melding into the world, they can't reach it. When we look back in the Bible, we've seen 
a determination to keep them distinct. In Genesis chapter 24, verses 2 through 4, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So Abraham was determined that Isaac not marry a wife from the peoples around him that were worshiping other gods. Genesis chapter 27, we see Rebekah then, one generation later. She was the one that became the wife of Isaac. Now she says to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like, like these of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? The very next chapter, Jacob is told by his father Isaac to head back to where he found, where he got Rebekah, and to go back and to get a wife. The New Testament even mirrors this. As it looks back to the time of Moses, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We often encourage our teenagers with this. We say, you know what, sometimes as a teenager, you don't see every the big picture as easily, and so some of the things don't seem as important. But if you're a believer and you marry somebody that's an unbeliever, there's going to be a whole host of issues that you don't see eye to eye on, especially once you get kids involved. It's the same way, not just in marriage, but with us and every, every Christian in every society that they live in. Jacob had this temptation put before him. Just meld with us. Just come in. And what did Shechem even say with Hamer? He said, you know what? All his stuff will be our stuff. There's always a temptation for you, Christian, to become one with the world, to just kind of blend in, to just kind of meld. But let me tell you this. You do that, and you will lose all impact. You need to reach out to the world. But if you're not different from the world, you've got nothing to reach it with. It's only through your distinctiveness that you can reach it. Now, I'm not saying run out there and be weird on purpose. I'm just saying if you live a devoted life to Jesus Christ, you'll be weird enough in the world's eyes. (laughs) That's the way it is. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We need to be distinct like light is distinct from darkness, like like salt is distinct from unsaltiness, I don't know what to call it, from bland, right? Pepper, no, pepper goes good with salt. But, <laughs> but you see, that's the, that's the point. If we, he says if you lose your distinctiveness, what are you good for? You can't reach the world in that way. You see, Jacob was in danger of losing his distinctiveness as the children of God. So as we look at this passage, we see a very dark background. Thankfully, the chapters leading up to it and the chapter after it, point to a very bright covenant that God is making with His people that gives us hope, that gives us a future. 
But in that, we need to be careful. Don't look at it too simply and just dismiss the lessons that are in here. Recognize the depravity of man, the sinfulness of mankind, the depths that we can plunge to. And you know why this is so important? Because when I look at mankind, I don't just see an evil outside. I see an evil within. I see temptation with my own heart to do the wrong thing, to go the wrong direction. The blackness, the darkness is not just out there. It's in here. Martin Luther said that one of the ways that you always had to look at the Bible was through the lenses of law and gospel. You know, with all the commands given to Moses, if we take just the top ten, just the ten commandments, you can't read through that list without finding that you're already guilty. The law is always there showing us the darkness within, showing us that we don't measure up. But that's where we need the gospel. The gospel is always there drawing us to God through Jesus Christ. That Jesus would come and conquer our darkness to bring us light. He is the light of the world. As we put our faith and trust in Him, then what do we need to do with our life? Live that life distinctively. Live for Christ. Be that salt. Be that light.